0: Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. And unfortunately, Marty is not with me today, but that's okay because I do have a guest with me. In fact, uh, this person is somebody that I have been wanting to talk to for a very long time, since the start of this podcast. And so I'm excited uh, that today is the day. And so with me is Trip Fuller. Trip, how's it going, man? Oh,
1: uh, I'm, I'm excited to get to talk to you, you know, when you, when you finally uh, get to interact with someone that whispers in your head, Like when you're just whispered in my head, when I do dishes at double speed with the silence cut out, you know, I, now I'm going to see if I can even follow you at normal, normal pace. Uh, right that's, yeah, we'll see. But yeah, I'm excited <laughs> about
0: it. Dope. There we go, man. Uh, Well, so we have like a, a question that we like to ask everyone who comes on the show. And uh, that question is important to us. Uh, and that question is, who is your favorite hockey team?
1: Oh, um, now I know it's not going to be any, either one of your favorite hockey team, but it's definitely the Carolina Hurricanes.
0: Oh, right on. Okay. I have a good buddy but, who's a, a Canes fan.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm most uh, – if you add up the total years lived, uh, Raleigh is number one. Okay. And I remember when we, we used to have the Raleigh ice caps. Then when we got an NHL team, that was awesome. The, the When we went to the Stanley Cup Finals for the first time, like the whole town went nuts. And then now they have this sweet new stadium. Uh, when we were living there, um, before we moved to Scotland, uh, we went to a number of games. That's just, there, there's, there's uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan until the playoffs, of watching the NHL on TV. Okay. But live, like a bad NHL game live, is just tons of fun. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so uh watching minor league hockey growing up and then when we got the hurricanes, I was like, this is great.
0: Yeah, dude. So. That's what's up, man. Yeah, I, I love hockey. And even I mean I agree with you so much. In person it's always fun, especially like I play I play ice hockey, but I play mm-hmm. in like what's commonly referred to as a beer league. <laughs> so it's like a bunch of adults. Uh, People tend to like pregame in the parking lot and stuff like that. So it's not anything special to watch, but it is insanely fun. And maybe the, you know, being on the ground more than we are standing up adds like a whole new layer of, you know, strategy and stuff that has to be implemented. But it's Mm -hmm. fun. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, Right on, man. Well, one more question um, that I I think I just want to know, because your podcast is called Homebrewed Christianity and uh, you are a beer fan or a beer connoisseur. So I wanted to know what, like you if you had to choose one style of beer, what is
1: your favorite? Ooh. What's your
0: go-to? Am
1: I, am I watching a hockey game, like in the playoffs, so it needs to be low enough in alcohol to drink multiple <laughs> during the game? Or is it like one beer and you're just gonna have just this one of it? I feel like this, they're very different. Ooh,
0: that's true. Like it,
1: like we just got done with Lakers and Dodgers championships,
0: right? If I was in LA,
1: I would have been, um, I would have been, let's see the two beers I drink during games. One is a beer called, uh, Drake's, uh, well, the brewery's Drake's and they have a beer called 1500 and it is a super dry, hot pale ale. It's like five and a half percent, super delicious. And then, um, the, uh, brewery right next to my house, uh, has a, uh, IPA called Tiki Torch and uh it's a you know dry tropical ipa and i would always just go get whatever their fresh ipa is for sporting events um my my favorite beer of all time is a beer called crux at monkish brewing company in torrance california it's an elderflower belgian single it's super delicious um now in europe right now i i go and get uh uh like classic beer styles that you can get fresh here. You couldn't get in the States. Okay. And, uh, I tend to go get like Saison's like Saison okay. DuPont. You can get a big bottle of it for six pounds. And that is like significantly, uh, cheaper than I could get it in the States and it's super yummy.
0: Nice. Sweet. That's what's up. That's good, man. And also too, I think if I recall correctly, um, you're you're not necessarily a fan of like hazy IPAs, right? Like you think no. like the West Coast style is is superior.
1: Yeah, West Coast is the best coast.
0: There we go. And you yeah, <laughs> see, hazy
1: IPAs are really wheat beers that have been dry hopped, and uh, or poorly made. As a competitive <laughs> homebrewer, like I spent years trying to get very clear, crisp IPAs where when you put it in a glass, you're like, look at that, it's clear. You can see bubbles. And then somebody started making it trendy to hand out milkshakes. And I'm <laughs> like, no, that was my failures. Those yeah. were failures. But whatever, <laughs> if, it gets, if, it, if it makes uh, high quality brewers uh, have a more uh, uh, revenue, so we have better quality beer overall, I will gladly purchase the other things on tap rather than hazy whatevers.
0: There you go. All right, fair enough. Fair well, enough. what's
1: yours like i want if if you if your team is in the hockey playoffs and you stop by craft beer store and you're like uh i need a six pack depending on how this game goes is it like so good i only drink one is it going real bad and i just start pounding like w- what is <laughs> what's going to happen
0: ah oh, man yeah that's a really good question and so i feel like for for casual drinking during a game i can either do like, Just a a solid, like, I agree, a West Coast style kind of uh, IPA. There's a a brewery uh, not too far from me called Black Flag um, Mm -hmm. that they just really hit the nail on the head all the time with their IPA. So really, I'll mess with anything from them. Um, And or, though, like a little bit different outside the realm of a good IPA is I'm actually a fan of Hefeweizen's. Mm-hmm. and so there are some really good ones in fact there's a, a brewery when I lived in uh West Palm Beach that I really liked called uh oh my goodness Funky Buddha and Funky Buddha has a Hefeweizen called the Floridian and it's just like a solid Hefeweizen and so that was a like a classic go-to when I would watch sports uh, in Florida the you know uh the Floridian was was the way to go mm-hmm. so
1: yeah and and you're in uh Massachusetts, is that right?
0: Maryland, close, another another M state, yeah, Maryland. Okay,
1: well, I just remember I had black flag when I feel like I was in Boston, when Mm. I had it, Uh, but.
0: I feel like it could be like a a, a popular name, maybe there's more than one.
1: Don't they have like, their double IPAs, like uh, Crisis, Crisis, Crisis Core, Crisis Coup. Uh,
0: I don't know, if it is, I haven't heard of it, which could very well be true. So I'm not oh. sure. I did have a really good double IPA the other day though from a place called Dewclaw, which is in Baltimore mm-hmm. and it's it's called Hop Tarts. And the can Pop look, Tarts. Yeah, the can looks like Pop Tarts. Oh, that's It's, it's pretty dope. It was really good. It's like kind of like a wild berry double IPA, slightly fruity, but just like a solid cl- uh, like crisp clean double. It was delicious.
1: Yeah, the uh now Stillwater is uh, at least one of their brew pubs is in um baltimore okay yeah the, the he i can't remember the guy's name he has like i think a couple different places but one of them's there and he ha- makes a saison called cellar door okay that has white sage in it
0: oh, oh interesting
1: oh yeah Stillwater. you should check it out
0: i do have to yeah absolutely sounds good oh i know what i'll be doing when this conversation is over
1: <laughs> yeah all the people not interested in beer were just like so, um, this, they're still talking about beer. See you.
0: Right. This is the problem, but I, I'm for it. Like I, th- the cool thing about doing your own podcast is you can talk about whatever you want and mm-hmm. talking about beer is fun. So, <laughs> you know, might as well.
1: Yes, but I agree.
0: It is fair enough to say that we didn't, I didn't ask you to come on today to talk about beer, although that is a fun uh, tangential conversation, but rather uh, you have a new book out called Divine Self-Investment, an Open and Relational Constructive Christology. Uh, it's a, a really good book. I personally enjoyed it. I've I've gone through it twice now. Um, like I was telling you earlier, I'm not going to pretend that I fully grasp and understand everything that's happening. Uh, but definitely my second time through um, was helpful. But just from the start, uh, because I know we're going to have uh, some listeners who are like, all right, you've already lost me open and relational constructive Christology. What are we talking about? Mm-hmm. So can you briefly open and relational theology? What is that
1: now? I, and I know you've had Tom Ordon before, so we he's, like a, he's a good example of another open and relational theology. So um, open and relational theologians could be uh, all over the denominational map. Uh, so you get from, like catholics to pentecostals and everything in between you have uh people that are uh conservative evangelical in method to more classically liberal or an alternative like post-structuralist postmodern types but what they hold in common is uh the open part is that the movement of history is actually open like it's not settled mm-hmm. um, as opposed to something like uh, c.s lewis uses the image of the history is like a book and when God, when only God was in eternity creates, then God creates history and the world, um, but God is outside of history. And so uh, in, in a sense, we are experiencing the book being read, but God already knows what we call past, present, and future because God's outside of it. Open and relational uh, thinkers would say, no, 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 uh, the that what is the future is genuinely open and mm-hmm. it's open. Um, the relational part is that in each moment of history, uh, God and the world are in relationship with each other. And so the world is affected by God. God is affected by the world. Uh, this means that unlike uh, classical theology, uh, God isn't perfect by not changing, not suffering, um, but, uh, but precisely by uh, journeying with, suffering with, sharing our joys, all that kind of stuff. So the relational part is, uh, about God's investment in this language I use in the book in the world and the world ends up shaping uh, God. But that relationality doesn't mean, uh, that God is just like topsy turvy in some way of, uh, changing God's character. The, the other thing that most open and relational thinkers share is that the, uh, loving nature of God is, uh, uh, is is unchanging. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. what does love look like if you're impacted by God and the world shape each other? It's different. Just like, what is it when when you have uh, hurt someone you care about? The loving thing involves, "I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me?" Which is different than at the end of a date that goes well and you're holding eye contact and you realize the kids go to bed and you're like, "Oh junk, let's take a nap." You know. So, like, what they what love looks like is different. So open, relational, loving, and then the whole doing constructive Christology is, well, there's these questions Christians always ask. Now we're going to ask them with this, these kind of deep commitments uh, kind of shaping.
0: Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah. So uh, uh, like a con- within the realm of like a constructive Christology, then is there something that the, the first word constructive would contrast with? Is there like another way to do Christology that is not constructive?
1: Well, um, so in, in the academy, constructive usually gets used uh, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, some people use systematic uh,
0: okay. when they're doing okay.
1: theology. Okay. And, and then in that sense, uh, you're developing uh, an entire system and stuff. And like I touch on lots of doctrines out of Christology, but it's not like I wrote for my first academic book a, an entire systematic theology. I'm, I'm going to do that in my fifties. That's what, yeah, that's what I tell know. myself now. <laughs> I might keep putting it off, you know, yeah. who knows. But uh, the other side is some people talk about uh, deconstructive theology and constructive uh, ones. So constructive in that sense is, yeah, um, uh, every proposal we give is a human construct mm-hmm. and they're more or less accurate or more or less beautiful. Uh, but Uh, that doesn't mean we should stop constructing. And so the the constructive task is one where like, I am trying to bring together different resources, different um, uh, ideas, different voices, different critical reflections, but it is uh, theoretically a a cohesive constructive proposal um, and not, uh, you know, uh, threads that take down different parts of the tradition or propose something that don't play it out. Uh, the, I mean, you've read the book twice now. One of the things uh, that I did when even editing it and then trying to cut out quite a bit so people could finish the book, unlike right. a lot of theology <laughs> books, uh, is how you cut it out so that the whole proposal's there. So the problems are, that you might have are with a, a full picture. Um, and so the goal was to present this con- constructive picture. But you could resonate with it and like it without going the whole way. But the compelling part, I, I think, for me was uh, let me try to put forth a big vision and then engage as opposed to arguing about one little question that you're you know, dealing with. Sure.
0: Sweet. Right on. Well, so within your book, you say that uh, in order to have a contemporary Christology, uh, you think that it must be three pronged. It should have an existential register, a metaphysical register, and also uh, take into account the historical Jesus. And so I want to kind of touch on those three things, uh, starting with the historical Jesus. So on Mm -hmm. our podcast, we have never done any historical Jesus kind of work. Um, That's something I would like to get to. Uh, But so what what is historical Jesus and why does that matter? Like just briefly for people who have no idea what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, when you think of just like the idea of rethinking your faith, right? Mm -hmm. And you've had different guests come on. And one of the things you notice is, There's usually some question that sends you off, right? And you, as a person of faith, you're like, well, I've been blessed by this tradition, but then I don't know about this, have this doubt or this question. And different individuals will have an experience or something that occasions a big doubt. Mm -hmm. Mine came like really young when I was in fifth grade. uh, I, uh, and I grew up a Baptist preacher's kid in the South. So naturally you read the Bible and pray every day. And you didn't know that there were humans that didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you uh, make charts with Bibles, because mm-hmm. why not? Um, the worst charts involved foreign policy. I didn't do any of those. Okay. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was uh Holy Week. And I read the four Gospels tell uh, narratives of Holy Week and charted out what happened. And I called my parents in the room at night because I just finished the Gospel of John. It's Holy Saturday. And I'm like, Mom, Dad. My Bible is broken. If <laughs> you all note, look at my chart. Jesus doesn't die on the same day in my four gospels. <laughs> and they're like looking at me, going, right, We have a nerd. You know, like what fifth grader does this kind of phrase? You know, I've asked someone in retrospect about it. In my mind, I'm having an existential crisis. Someone sold the preacher's kid. like a screwed up Bible. And I'm like going through it. And I'm like, and the which day he dies on significantly changes how you interpret the death of Jesus, whether or not the sacrificial lambs being sacrificed. And I'm like going through like my problems with it. And then don't you think they should have got an editor? They should see the (laughs) resurrected Christ in the same place. Like sometimes there's an angel, sometimes they're not. Did he need help rolling back the stone? That's weird. He just conquered death. Sometimes he goes through freaking walls and shows up, and other times, well, I need an angel to move a stone. He's eating fish on one day, floating around the next, saying, (laughs) do you want to touch my hole? And then he's floating up, comes back down, floats back up again. What is this going on, you know? And I'm very frustrated, and my dad's just like, yeah, uh, that's accurate. That's like, what is in the Bible? And, And I realized at that point that me that my i I just assumed that the truth of it meant it all lined up and there was just one telling and this is the true one and that's probably what actually really happened because what is really really true is what really really happened based on what a historian said that is not what christians have ever thought it wasn't until the enlightenment we had those ideas i didn't know i had learned them and then i was disturbed to find out that the bible that has been canonized didn't meet my very Enlightenment notions of truth demands. And so <laughs> I got real frustrated. And out of that, uh, I, I started asking what the differences were and where did it come from. And that led to reading uh, historical Jesus stuff. That historians, um, uh, Biblical scholars do a number of things with that. One is they pay attention that each of the Gospels actually have a different context that we know where it emerged from based on kind of like where you date the text, the language, the questions that are being asked. Um, They also come from different types of communities with different concerns. So the Gospel of Luke is addressing much more of Gentile concerns in early church after they've been converted versus Matthew, which is more Jewish, even Mm -hmm. though they have a lot of the same content. Um, Then you get uh, the uh, context for interpreting them. Uh, Mark is the oldest gospel we have. It is dealing with the destruction of the temple in 70 and processing that relationship to Jesus. Versus um, the newest gospel, the Gospel of John, which is addressing the the synagogues post destruction, no longer wanting Christians around because um, we let people join our churches that didn't get snipped. You know, <laughs> which 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 they're basically were just saying you should believe the Bible, right? And because the Bible's like, yeah, you got to get snipped to join our team, and Paul. Won an argument with Peter and ever, and the actual disciples of Jesus that that wasn't necessary, and he's like, "Now the Holy Spirit changed her mind, right?" Yeah. So like, if you just even look at the Gospels, they have different theological voices, and the church canonized all of them, like the, a giant multiplicity of divergent testimonies about who Jesus is and the life and what it means and what it means to be the body of Christ. The church is like, "Yes," and uh, and then today historians use those texts knowing more about our historical context, and then trying to figure out what we could say on the terms of history as a, uh, you know, in scholarship about the person Jesus. And what do we notice when we put even those texts and things in historical context? Uh, You know, a a popular one that, you know, stuck out to me early on. And I remember uh, arguing about religion and politics a lot at Thanksgiving, because our family did it recreationally. Like when i would learned enough about uh, uh, second temple period Judaism, the t- Judaism at Jesus' time. Well, when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God's the things that are God's, uh, he was not Thomas Jefferson. He was not thinking of the separation of church and state. Um, he, 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 that response was asking, was, was when he was asked, do you pay your taxes, right, by the uh, uh, Pharisees. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, do you have a coin on you? I, I happen not to have one. And then he says, whose name uh, or whose image and whose title's on it? Well, they don't answer the question. They just say whose picture's Caesar's. The title that's on it is Caesar's son of God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, when Jesus looks at him, knowing that the biggest question facing Judaism is do we cooperate with Roman imperial oppression and make do to get by, or do we resist it? Uh, and then Jesus says to him, Will you give to Caesar what's Caesar's, Caesar, son of God, the thing everyone knew he didn't say, and give to God's what is God's. Jesus, and if you think about it historically in that context, was calling out someone who thinks that there's anything in all creation that's not God's. <laughs> right? Like every every Jewish person knows everything in all creation. There's even the, the joke, uh, um, I think it's Ezekiel jokes about how many cows God has, because it's just funny, like would the rich possess the cows and then they're exchanging them. He's like, no, all the cows are God's, right? Right. So the historical Jesus um, for me was something I had to investigate because I thought the truth of the gospel was that it all lined up, it was all perfect and it was all true in some surface level way. And what historical Jesus did was help me learn to read the text in context and then learn how they would have been heard in that place. Um, and then help me realize what parts of these narratives that we're reading are, are a, a kind of narrative theology, in a sense, about the, the, the risen Christ. So Jesus himself historically um, may or may not have advocated for the inclusion of uh, uncircumcised Gentiles. But the church came to that conclusion But the church was the living body of Christ. So then when you're communicating a narrative, and it's not to be the surface, you may say things that are, according to us enlightened people, not accurate historically. And then in your head, you're like, yeah, we are the body of the risen Christ. This is what the spirit has revealed to us. And the story is actually true. Yeah. But then we have this thing in us because we are just posted after the enlightenment. We're just sitting there going, but is it real? Is it? (laughs) Is it? And it all started with me was in fifth grade when I realized that my Bible wasn't actually broken. Um, And and I think this book and the one before it are both so much connected to uh, realizing how much more vibrant and rich the account of the faith is when you're not just defending the surface. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you get to give the gospel writers their own voice back, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John have very different Christologies and they're all in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And think of how many Christians feel like if they just have a little bit different idea than the person sitting next to them at church, they don't voice it. Mm -hmm. Well, Mark has officially a low Christology, um, the gospel of Mark. Jesus may or may not have become divine, but probably at his baptism, because there's no birth narrative, no, like in the beginning was the word. And uh, after the resurrection in Mark, uh, he is seen by uh, two females who are scared and don't tell him. <laughs> right. In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus dies, the only thing he says is, my God, why have you forsaken me?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That is very different than John who the mm-hmm. gospel begins by saying, in the beginning was the word, the word was God. Am I clear yet? You know, and then uh, when Jesus, it goes to get arrested in John, they're like, where is Jesus? And he says, I am, you know, like I am God, but you're know, playing on the Moses thing and they all fall down. And then Jesus <laughs> is like, I'll go with you. I'm in charge. And then right. when he's dying in the gospel, of John, he's like, it is finished. Peace. I'm out, you know, and, uh, and it's a, they're like he either was acting like he didn't know if Abba existed in history, or he was self-consciously the eternal word. Like they don't both happen right. if you were concerned about the history, but could the truth of Easter and the, the cross and resurrection include what each of them are getting at? Yeah. So much. So they both got canonized, but <laughs> right, so it's not even like you're doing weird liberal things. You're literally just saying maybe the church was doing something in Intentional when they canonize a multiplicity of testimonies that don't actually agree on everything. Because the point isn't sameness of belief. It's, it is really the confession of faith itself, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and there was a, 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 a heretic in the mm-hmm. early church named Tatian who was condemned and he, and he actually created what was called a harmony gospel. He lined up everything that happened in any of the gospels wrote one and made sure they all happened. And so there are no contradictions. So like in John, Jesus cleanses the temple at mm-hmm. the beginning of his ministry. And the other three, it's like the end of the week and why he dies. Mm-hmm. Tatian's like, well, it obviously happened twice because it's all <laughs> literally true. Right? Um, Jesus gives the sermon on the Mount. And then the next week when he gets down the mountain, he gives the sermon on the plane. And uh, all of a sudden he had switched from blessed of the poor to blessed of the poor in spirit, you know, like the, so like the church resisted that. But I think a lot of us um, really wish Tatian won. you know, yeah, we have absolutely. Some, yeah. Sorry. That was a long answer. No,
0: it's, that, it's <laughs> really good. It's super helpful too. I, it's super clarifying and I know um, people myself included find that helpful. So um, that's good. And it helps, it helps frame things, especially too, because you talk about, um, I think this ties in. You talk about how uh, Christology then is a, is a disciple's discipline. Um, it's, it's, uh, I forget the the exact language you use, but you're talking about, it's, it's, it's not just, um, it's like a recognition, I think is, is the word that you use. Mm-hmm. Saying Jesus is the Christ uh, is a statement we make on faith. And then following that, we can then start to do Christology. Is that kind of the idea of, of it being a disciple's discipline?
1: Yeah. yeah. Like, um, the, you know, when you ask the questions that the heart of Christology, and the two big ones are the person of Christ, so how the humanity and divinity thing works out, mm-hmm. and then the work of Christ, what did God accomplish or do in Jesus, um, then uh, the you don't ask those questions about the person Jesus unless the person Jesus has some meaning outside any other person that is executed by the state, right? Okay. Uh, it, so, you um, and I think that kind of desire for uh, a, a surface type Christology is really made it problematic. And it shows up a lot in apologetics. Like, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, when it, there was this book, Josh McDowell did, like the evidence that demands a verdict. Yep. You know, um, and the idea is that if you just pay attention to everything in the Bible and what Jesus did, then obviously he's the second person in the Trinity. Or um, you see it in the C.S. Lewis, when he's like, yeah, Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, as mm-hmm. if like those are the only live options. Right. Um, because of it, it, which it's problematic if you know, New Testament studies, but like, all of those type of things presume that the goal is the, the identification of Jesus as the Christ. And that it's, if you're just honest and, and rational and thoughtful, that's true. But if you look at the gospels, the first big confession, Peter's doesn't go that way, right? He's sitting around they're all hanging out with the disciples and Jesus goes, well, who do the people say I am? And they're like, well, well, some said you're like John the Baptist. Maybe God put the head back on and, and you're, you're rolling again. Others, maybe Elijah came back. He didn't die. He's supposed to come back when the Messiah is going to come. What if you're that? Um, and then today you get the the same type of things. Like if you just, there, there's so many different ex- accounts of what you could say about Jesus. Like, uh, well, if you just read Isaiah 53, five, because you were a Striper fan, then you would know <laughs> that uh, this evidence demands this verdict and he's, he's the Messiah and the Lord. And, and um, or historical Jesus scholars do it, right? Where um, the Jesus seminar, uh, someone like John Dominic Crossan said, she's a wandering cynic sage that practices open table, uh, his open table commensality was offensive to religious, cultural, and political standards alike. And like in this historical reconstruction, and they, the, the, then Jesus says, Well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, son of the living God. But Jesus' response to that isn't obviously that's true. <laughs> All he right. says, He says, My heavenly father revealed that to you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, for me, Christology involves uh, the encounter with Jesus as the Christ to recognize, not because it's demanded, but because of the gift of faith, that in this person, you also talk about what it means to be you, right? I'm a disciple. I've given myself to this way, this community, this, this practice. And when I talk about Jesus, I'm not talking about just some dude, even one that has really cool ideas. You're talking about uh, the mediation of God, the revelation of God. And so Christology being a disciples discipline is important because it's only as a disciple that you talk about this historical Jesus with a metaphysical register, right? It's really about who God is Mm -hmm. and an existential register that it's about who you are. Because from the earliest church, um, what happens? We are baptized. We die to an old self and rise to a new one, or um, you're a new creation in Christ, right? From the earliest moments, who you are and it is re-given, you're given a new life in Christ, and who God is, is something the early church couldn't talk about without telling the story of Jesus, Mm -hmm. and so if Christology is something you do as if you're not existentially engaged in that way, I think we miss, uh, we miss the point, and in the academy that can happen, because like every topic, it turns into something you do um, and uh, start talking about, and I think a unique element of Christology is it involves that type of existential engagement. Like, unlike if we asked about God, like I'm teaching a philosophy of religion class right now, and there are seven religions and atheists in the class, and we can have debates on the rules of philosophy about whether or not there is a God and then what God would be like. And no one is is like privileged because they happen to have some, you know, whatever their tradition is they come from. right? Uh, But this isn't about like Christology, it doesn't work that way. So, um, and acknowledging the difference, I think, is uh, helpful.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And so, um, what kind of what you then do in your book is you you uh, kind of, if I understand correctly, there's kind of been two ways almost of of one doing Christology, a Christology from above and a Christology from below, and oftentimes they kind of get pitted against one another. But what you're trying to do in your book. Is kind of build a bridge between the two. Is that do I understand that correctly?
1: Yeah, yeah. And and you know, Christology from below are ones that begin with the historical Jesus. They construct a historical Jesus and then see what what of our Christian confessions we can get from that. Because now we have a real firm, trustworthy authority, namely history and reason. Mm -hmm. Others but start from above and they're like, Well, we already know what the answer is because God showed it to us. And it's the conclusions of the Christian tradition. So maybe you start from a creed or you start from uh, uh, infallible scripture or whatever. Uh, And and then the act of Christology is really interpreting uh, the conclusions you start with, right? Um, The Christology from within is saying there are benefits from knowing the tradition, its conclusions, its conversations, its, its discussions, and they benefit and shape everything. Also, there are benefits from engaging in critical, faithful reflection, the historical Jesus and stuff. But the, uh, just like the disciples in the New Testament, you can get the title correct and get the content wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, right after that story of Peter's confession, uh, Jesus says, well, I'm going to go to Jerusalem because it's packed full of corrupt religion and uh, corrupt politics. We're giving ourselves a showdown. And Peter it's like, whoa, whoa, JC, as, you know, your enlightened brand manager, I just want you to know, direct confrontation with imperial power, not good. They're going to kill you. <laughs> and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? Yes. So uh, the James and John, after the transfiguration, uh, uh, or right before it says, you know, w- when you come into your kingdom, uh, we want to be on your right and left. And Jesus is like, do you have no idea what you're asking for, right? They are thinking, you're gonna be like Caesar, but nice. Right. And he's like, I'm going to a cross. Yeah. Um, and so the 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 thing for me is that Christology from within is an affirmation that we can't, in our kind of postmodern context, uh, not engage in tradition, but we can't. Uh, like recapitulate it as if the world is the same, and we also can't uh, build things that are somehow closed, final, rational, or determined just by what historians can give us or, or whatever. Um, but the bigger challenge for Christians around Christology is discipleship. Mm-hmm. the The thing that was problematic for the disciples uh, was not whether or not they thought Jesus was the Messiah. That was you know, kind of an established thing. The problem was they wanted him to be different than he really was. It was the content of his character and the call to participate that was the problem. And you don't wrestle with those um, if the whole time you're deciding whether or not the confession itself is legitimate. Mm -hmm. Right. And I feel like a lot of us who have reasons for doubt, reasons for critical, then we existentially disengage from being committed disciples. Right. And then we're like, if I finally get an answer to this or I resolve or reconstruct this, then I might pray for my enemies or forgive without counting or all the things that shape your way of being in the world such that the truth of Christianity becomes more believable. Mm -hmm. But it's believable precisely because you're in a community that takes the way of life in the way of Jesus seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, So Christology from within was a way of framing, engaging those conversations above and below, but uh, emphasizing that Christology is a conversation among disciples trying to embody this in the world. Yeah. So insistence throughout it about the relational nature of God. And then how does Jesus model a relationship with God? How do we participate in that model? What does that mean for the believing community and disciples? The the, the emphasis on relationality through is because you know, in one sense, you could have a whole like uh, second book that is like, "Here's what this actually means for Christian discipleship." Right. Anyway.
0: Yeah, but no, that that's so good because, and I think the discipleship piece is so important because this is one of my major frustrations um, that I tend to run into and have within, uh, especially Western Christianity today, is is people uh, seem to want and, or perhaps, perhaps I, I should say it differently, people have been sold the idea that Jesus is savior and the Lord bit has become kind of optional. The discipleship bit that, Oh, that's what like those high level, like good Christians do. They do the discipleship mm-hmm. stuff. And that's because we've built our, our, our Christologies, our understandings of salvation solely around the cross, rather than actually taking into account and, and can, you know, um, placing that conversation into the larger context of Jesus's life and ministry. So I think the discipleship thing is super important. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I would put it this way just for me, like,
0: yeah, go for it. uh,
1: I don't, I don't know if I would stay Christian because I thought these ideas were cool. Okay. You know what I mean? Like I'm a Christian because I, I continue to require Jesus to explain my own relationship with the world and my encounter Mm. with the divine. Yeah. Um, And so uh, the other day, I don't, I've done a bunch of interviews, you know, about this. And then I'm responding to people's like in academic context, articles and things. And uh, one of the academic criticisms that came in, I was reading it and realized that because of the type of book it is, I didn't put um, like, it was like I had vignettes of things I did as a minister to explain why I said something (laughs) 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 like you, like if it was a book largely for um, yeah, like a public audience or whatever, in like a, you know, wasn't that nerdy? I would. But um, <laughs> the discipleship thing, I and I put it in the written response, we'll see if the, they publish it. But I, I told a story of um, as a minister at a, a progressive Protestant church denomination, UCC, when I was mm-hmm. in Los Angeles doing my PhD. Uh, when people join the congregation or interested in it, most of the time, they didn't have religious baggage at all. They were just spiritual free agents of sort. Maybe they connected with the church in a and uh, like because of political involvement and activism around ecology or sure. something like that. Or um, we worked a lot around Prop Eight, like the getting rid of the gay marriage ban and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that could have been the first step uh, or something. And then, so when you're doing joining the church, you're not like dealing with people that grew up Christian and think you're they're like, I haven't even read the Bible before. And this kind of stuff. I, I did a class where we were going through the liturgical text with everyone for whatever the week is. And it was this Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And i like, planned this beautiful talk and halfway through just reading the text, someone raised their hand. God told him to kill his kid, you know, <laughs> and if yeah, you know yeah, that yeah. story's there, like you just are going like, what can we do with this? This is crazy. Right. He this guys like, that's offensive. Or do we have to believe that, you know? Um, so when it goes to the confirmation class with adults that were new, uh, I mean, I wasn't going to sit there and lecture theology at them, even though that's technically what I do professionally. Um, the, uh, we created uh, groups where you did experiments in truth where they would be walking through one of the gospels slowly. And then for a month, we would come up with an experiment around a teaching of Jesus, And I did a bunch of those with a bunch of different groups. And it's amazing that it's based on actually what Jesus did, right? He dodges almost every good theology question. (laughs) And he consistently uses those as opportunities to tell stories that people write dissertations about, and we still don't know exactly what they mean, called parables. And then he's like, why don't you try this weird, crazy discipleship move? Like, sell what you have and give it to the poor. Or like, you know, these type of things are... And so, that, in doing it, say like we took uh, "Don't Judge," right, and and we came up with an experiment that every time anyone in our group, and they're like I don't know, ten ish or so adults, uh, then you would just text a name, the first name of the person you judged, and everyone would get it because it's a text group, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Get it, and like say you, you're, I text Josh because I'm just totally judging you right now, and I text it to the group, they see it and they say, God. You made and know and love Josh completely. Give Trip the eyes to see him as you see him, and the courage of faith to love him, as you intended him be loved. That's it. But then, in the week, in the when we get together, we process it. By uh, uh, it, most adults are not in a community that thinks that practice is worth cultivating. Sure. Then week three, someone texts themselves. So if I texted uh, the whole group Trip, and all of a sudden they're like. God, you made a no and love trip completely. Give him the eyes to see himself as you see him and the courage of faith to love him as you intend to be loved. That week, then it gets real. I've done yeah. that with multiple groups. It always happens around week three or four. Someone texts himself. Then 90% of the texts, are you texting yourself? Because you realize that underneath the activity of judgment and hypocrisy and all this stuff is that most of us don't really think the most true thing about you is that you're the beloved of God. Sure. And then when, when you start to believe things other people say about you, you're not good enough, right? When those lies, because they disagree with God's affirmation that you're the beloved, when those lies become true about you, then the very diff, like deflationary moves to your being, you start doing to other people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you get done doing this for a month, real adults doing it for a month. And then you go, well, is Jesus the Christ, son of the living God? You want to know what the answers are going to be? They're not going to be. Yeah, well, uh, but what's a historian think? Or <laughs> right. well, obviously, because these prophecies line up correctly, the response out of it is: is the way of Jesus given, modeled, and now mediated in this Christian community? Is this access to life deeply? Do you feel more human in this? So human that there's a dignity to being human that you may not have recognized and all that. So you you see what I'm saying? Like that's Christology from within. That doesn't mean I don't love historical Jesus stuff. That doesn't mean I don't ask questions about religious pluralism and how that relates or particular understandings of the atonement and all that. But Jesus and his primary insistence was what the community that, that, uh, that gives him allegiance looks like, how they relate to each other. And underneath it, Is, and this is open, maybe an open relational theologian talking that our relationships work so much better when what you cultivate is awareness to the one Jesus called Abba's presence, Mm -hmm. Abba's affirmation of you. Mm -hmm. And when that affirmation shapes you, then you get called moment to moment to extend the boundaries of your love, even to your enemy, and then to extend what you put up for grabs even to your whole, your, your whole being that changes the way we relate to our possessions, our privilege, our power, our prestige. It means we to have this, we're called to have the same mind be in us that is in Christ Jesus. You see, like it, 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 it's not like you don't get to those questions. Most people ask and there's not there's not possible answers. It's just, you have bad answers if you aren't participating in the body of Christ and yeah. trying to live in integrity with it.
0: Yeah. Straight up. I, I think that's, it, that's a great way, and a, a perfect example. It, it puts words and like actual lived experience to this idea um, that I've, or not, yeah, that I've been um, stumbling a- across more recently within the last year or so. Uh, but this idea that there is a there's a, a deeper level of knowledge than just ideological claims. But it's it's there's an experiential knowledge that once you experience. Uh, the divine, once you have an experience with the living God, with Christ, um, those things actually do something. And like, because of the experiential knowledge, uh, for me, at least my experience of God and my experience of Christ. And when I live into the ways and and the teachings of Jesus, and like you said, my love expands, um, Mm -hmm. humanity feels deeper. Like all these things are, are then true experientially. That's why I'm still a Christian because mm-hmm. I've experienced those things. It's, it's no longer just these ideological claims, which then is nice because you can interact with all the ideological claims. And when you have your doubts and your concerns or whatever, you can engage those things without, um, I guess, basically without having to be afraid because experientially, you know, God. And I think that's huge.
1: You, you know, the. I've been trying to think of a way of talking about this and, um, and you tell me what you think. So in using the example of someone you love, right? So when, when you're talking to your friend who's like smitten and falls in love and they're like, oh, he's wonderful. What about him? Oh, and they're just going on and on about this guy and they fall in love or whatever. And you hear it and, you know, sometimes, you, you, you're like, well, this is young love. We'll see how it goes. Then they've been dating long enough. Then they're like talking about possibly getting engaged and stuff. And if you are a friend and you're watching this whole relationship, at some point um, you think the way the other person is treating your friend correlates to the deep affirmation that your friend has for them in love. Mm-hmm. That, that the reality of that relationship there's a correspondence between the experiential center of the one who's in love with the character of the person they're relating. And that's when friends are like so pumped to go to a wedding, right? Yeah, And yeah. you get, they can you do the toast and you're like, let me tell a funny story where I thought this was crazy early on, insert coming, getting to know both sides. I'm glad I'm here. Right. And, uh, you know, in that, I, I think that there's, uh, you see this like two part, right? Like if I set da- if you sit down with your friend, and they're like, I think we're going to get married. And you realize that person is a jerk. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to say uh, the reality, the way you're treated and the way you're looking at the world doesn't correspond with what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's serious issues here. Sure. Or you could see people get married and over time they change. And that co- the, the, the love doesn't exist anymore. And so the, there's these, both of these levels uh, that exist, and I think that for a lot of Christians, um, the reason they feel ob- they didn't fall in love with God in some deep, deep sense, they were told you have to believe these things, mm-hmm. and then the believing of the things about God became became a security blanket for dealing with their own questions around finitude or their own judgment and all this type of stuff. So their insecurity about the relationship with God. Um, is somehow up for grabs because they're starting to think things differently about uh, the reality of God. And I think w- what you were describing to me is one where, no, like when when the, the depth of that relationship is there, what you don't know about God are things, new things that are different than how you might've understood it are not threats to the relationship right. because it's an actual relationship. It's like right. going home to meet your fiance's family. Like you're going to discover stuff you didn't know. Right. But that's not a bad thing. And it's not like that means the the relationship was a, a farce. And uh, and you know, and, but I do think that there are things that Christians thought they had to believe that if true, you should get rid of God, right? Like yeah. so <laughs> underneath Straight open up. relational theology <laughs> stuff is like um the like the open relational the- theological vision is one where divine omnipotence is just not good. Like right. the, you don't need to run around convincing yourself um, that you have to believe this. Like when you look at evil and suffering in the world, the idea that God permitted or ordained it is just means that God's not even as nice as Jesus. So update your theology. Yeah. And um, And it, it's not like just to dismiss this tradition. It's to say the actual experience of God in Christ. What if it is too good to label with Calvin? What if it's just not good enough? Your poetry's bad. It's not the relationship. Or you've seen people who struggle so much to think whether or not God could love their gay neighbor. And then they finally come around to it. And then they realize they're gay because their whole whole life, they couldn't even postulate the possibility that of the diversity of expressions, they could be a homosexual because it's not even a possibility. Then all of a sudden they realize God's big enough and then they could be more honest about themselves and then, what, what do you do with that? Do you do you just say like, uh, "Well, guess God's calling me to uh, celibacy and all this type of you know"? They're trying now to shove who they are back in some idea, or or does uh, your an understanding of God, and your understanding of self and things get to grow as you encounter more deeply the richness of the divine life? And I think uh, um, that the you know, for me when when you're let's see how it would be a better way to put it uh if you're if you still hold the same things you've always held about god uh year after year and your own experience in a community of faithful disciples do not shift it and change it then it's it's like you're uh, not relating to a living individual. Right, right. Um, and I just, it's, it's like, a, um, if I still thought my wife was the same person I married, it would be bad for our relationship. And if she thought I was the same person, it would be bad for our relationship. You all have concepts of God in your head. Mm-hmm. And that concept is an object. It's an object of your mind, Right. but God is not an object. God is a living subject and uh, the best dignity you can give to a human who's like significantly less mysterious than God is that they get the permission to destroy the idea you have of them in your head because of who they really are.
0: Mm-hmm. I've
1: judged people for years and then they show up to be your best friend at a time. And I didn't think that's how they saw me and how they cared for <laughs> me. And then I could either go, I can't believe you're here because you're, you know, I always thought you were kind of like a... Like a marginal friend, yeah. And you're like, no, I told you I care for you, right? What, which, which, what's going to be the truth of it? And the giving the gift to God, the same gift you should give to every person, is that their subjectivity remains a mystery, and that mystery can uh, always be redefined by their character and by the by the character of their actions. And as Christians, like God tells you who God is in Jesus, and so I'm just shocked how many Christians find it offensive that God should at least be as nice as Jesus.
0: Right. <laughs> it's actually crazy. Yeah, and I think to this again this just this is such a good demonstration of um this language I've been toying with this idea that um the the Christian faith is a journey of becoming, not one necessarily of arriving. I mean, I guess eventually somewhere in the future there will be some kind of ultimate arrival whatever that means. Um but our faith journey is just this this journey of becoming, uh, where we are interacting with a living God. Like so many people, act as if like they don't, like they'll affirm Jesus rose from the dead, but then they don't act like they actually believe that Jesus is somehow active and present today, or that God is somehow active and present today. And then we set up these, like you're saying, these these categories. We we codify them. Think that's how we have to believe forever. And it spits in the face of this idea that God is active and present, which I guess could be an open and relational idea, which I'm more prone to, but still, um, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, this journey of becoming and, um, yeah, the interacting with God, it's just, it's beautiful. It's why I love open and relational theology.
1: Well, I've experienced kind of what you're saying where uh, someone's insisting on, Uh, this very specific interpretation of Easter and the resurrection experience. And then you're pretty sure that that meant that that's because God was escaping the world until God comes back to judge it, you know, where it's like, well, we had Easter. And I know because Jesus got the shit out of here and it's coming (laughs) back when like dad's done getting pissed. Yeah. And, uh, And in the as opposed to the resurrection, actually opening up what the possibilities of new creation are moment to moment, and our invitation to participate in newness of life, it's a, um, yeah, you in you know, the and I talk about this in uh, chapter one in thinking of open and relational theologies that you, when God is invested in the world, and the when God is related to the world, then that moment the moment of becoming you're talking about in it there's always three powers at play there's the past and what's happened is uh, the previous relationships of God in the world right like the events that have become when they happen they happen and they set the potential possibilities for the next moment um, th- like if we had uh, if you'd asked a different question or I had answered differently where the conversation is right now would be really different Absolutely, uh, because the past s- creates the possibilities. I like to think of it like a, a slice of pizza. Yeah, you know, like the tip, what just happened, and then there's like the the crust connected to that slice, and then um, so the past is one power. Then in process thought and in open relational thought in general, um, there's the call of God or the lure of God or the where the possibilities that are available to that next moment of becoming, and those possibilities. There's a wide spectrum of them, but it's not everything. The next moment is in uh, the heavenly perfection or complete hell. Those are not live options in the next moment, but God does care and has a valuation about what's possible. Mm-hmm. And so what does God give each moment is not just uh, uh, freedom and some, some like uh, unvalued sense, but God values the possibilities. And what does God desire? Um, Beauty and truth and goodness, and so in whatever way that can be more actualized in that moment of becoming, that is what God calls us towards as Christians, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And and I think as open relational thinkers, this is just true of how the world works. Um, but then the third power is what that creature does in response to the creator, that uh, we each have some measure of responsiveness. That level of responsiveness changes based on our own subjectivity like a tree is significantly less able to respond to the world and possibilities mm-hmm. than a mouse and a mouse yeah. is less so than a uh, human and such and, and the humans vary right like your ability to respond uh and moment to moment changes in over your life um and uh, for me if i have spent enough time in uh in prayer And if I'm not really hungry and in traffic, my ability to attend to beauty and goodness is significantly higher. Yeah. You know, so it's not like this is some, uh, it's always obvious uh, sense, but each moment you inherit the past, there's valued possibilities and God desires the most beautiful thing to come into being. And then in whatever way you can contribute, you have your own contribution to make. And if we can attend to God's call, then more beauty and goodness come into being but all three powers are at play. And so much of our problem, I think as Christians is when we think um, that we can either change the past and then we become bitter and resentful for what's happened and we can't change it. You can't pick where you're thrown in the world. Can't pick your family can't pick you. You can get hung up about what you do, have done in the past and it ain't going to change. Yeah. Um, right. And then some of us wish that we could be responsible for what other people did and not ourselves.
0: <laughs> right? And so think
1: of, uh, as a parent, this happens, or and it happened when I was a youth minister, if kids acted crazy, right? You're just like all of a sudden embarrassed, like somehow you were in charge of them, or your kid acts their age in a grocery store, and you start freaking out. Um, but you can only be responsible to other people with your actual agency that you actually have in a moment. You can't be responsible for them. But if you do, then you were what? Wanting to control them. And you know what bad parents do? They try to. And then they hit their kid and force them around. They don't like teach them to cultivate responsible uh, responsibility with their own agency. They force them to go do things, right? Well, a lot of Christians think God is worse than a mediocre parent. Yeah, <laughs> They think that God isn't just responsible to us, helping us cultivate a deep sense of self, helping us come to participate more in mind. They think like you want to know what perfect deity is? It is the dad that's so mad his kid got a B plus that he walks with him to school, holds his pencil, and then makes him do good. Like yeah. <laughs> they, they, your par- a good parent helps you cultivate your identity and way of being in the world such that you act from a reservoir of integrity and virtue. And that is called good parenting. I don't have to worry what my kid's doing when I, I'm not there means I succeeded. Not that I am a, uh, a wuss yeah and somehow like we're like no yeah uh, that might be good parenting but you know what good abba ing is <laughs> uh, a totalitarian parent that yeah yeah And so there's so many ways that i think when you start thinking of um your image of god if what the picture of god as jesus describes it, as loving parent determines things than as opposed to the other images that are in Scripture, but they aren't the dominant one for Jesus, like King or Lawgiver and that kind of thing. Uh, for Jesus, Abba is King. That's very different than most pictures of of kings, because then you become a child of God. That's what the whole thing's about. Mm-hmm. If God, if Abba is the law, if, if Abba is the lawyer or the lawgiver, you're not showing up to your murder trial. You're getting adopted. Yeah. You're getting adopted. It's good news. It's really good news. (laughs) And Jesus tells us, I think that that the heart of the Christian life is this form, this shape of life where you are attending to the presence and affirmation and call of ABBA. And so open relational thought. And that process of becoming is one is uh, learning to attune to it. And then what does it look like to do it? Well, well, Jesus is helpful. (laughs) And, um, anyway so that was a long excursus but i do think thinking of the three powers in any moment of becoming helps us realize like what we're actually responsible for is what we can do Mm -hmm. Um, but what how you respond opens up amazing new possibilities in the future yeah yeah and so the book like when you talk about jesus um if uh is if jesus isn't you know, if you're not obsessed with Jesus being perfect because He's sinless, where, and I, I remember some really bad uh, sermons at youth retreats. Right? They talk about the sinlessness of Jesus, and then the the, the ministers trying to cultivate in everyone that experience of being just lust filled boys, so yeah. that they can set up for a high quality uh, convert, maybe. Maybe like write your lusty thoughts on a piece of paper and nail it to a cross or something. That would be awesome. Uh, I did that. I know. I... <laughs> I mean, it's it's just like in Romans. That's what yeah. I'm sure that's what Paul meant. Um, <laughs> but you know, like you sitting there, yeah. and you know, Jesus is sinless, and you know what Jesus never did? He never he never had a woody. You yeah. Know? He never... <laughs> and, and this is going on, and they think like, well, Jesus is fully human, but whoa, whoa, whoa! Don't worry, he and sin. All right. Because you know what most of you know, just your depravity. It's yeah. bad. You're bad. It's okay. We have some help for you. But like that whole notion creates this distinction between Jesus and us, where you wonder if He was ever really human. Right. Um, the open right. relational framework would say that the uniqueness of Jesus isn't that He's like this mysterious fourteen-year-old that had never had an erection. Right. And you're like, what is well, that? Makes no sense. <laughs> Does that even count? Right, Like He never had to figure out what to do when you're asked to go to the board and, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, that's not human. Uh, yeah. But the question then would be, like, is he faithful to God moment to moment? It's not a sinlessness. It's a faithfulness. Yeah. And if you think of those three powers, then what is it happens when the creature is fully faithful to the call of God? you have the image of the invisible God that's what you have well that's in the Bible that's convenient you know you have the, uh, the the lure of God, the desire of God, the aim of God become material and it doesn't involve the intervention. it involves Jesus's own faithfulness mm-hmm. makes him the image bearer of God in the world yeah. Yeah. Um, the, or you could say the word made flesh. That's an easy way, but you see how the open relational thing kind of plays out with uh, that vision. That's how it kind of gets to Christology since we derailed and didn't end up talking a whole lot about it.
0: (laughs) It's all good. Yeah, it's all good. This is, it's a good conversation. I think, but like, if I do, I, if I understand correctly is, and maybe I'm, I'm off here, but is the idea then that through Jesus's faithfulness to Abba, uh, he, It was through the faithfulness that Jesus, the person becomes the Christ. Is that the idea or, or no, am I missing something?
1: Well, in the, in the book itself, there's um, the spirit Christology and the logos Christology chapters kind of like get connected for, you know, saying more, but like, if you're trying to understand um, the spirit Christology chapter, in a sense, the spirit of God is always calling, luring, desiring creation mm-hmm. to respond right? And, or in the Logos chapter, God is always giving God's self to the world. God right. has refused to be God without us. Right. So the question is in what way in each moment is the world receiving the gift of divine life into itself? So the, um, the person of Jesus in his, uh, through his faithfulness, you get the materializing of the divine desire yeah but you also um you know he isn't in a vacuum right like so i emphasize in the book that jesus would make no sense if sarah and abraham hadn't responded
0: right right if
1: the exodus hadn't happened if the prophets hadn't set this ongoing conversation so it's not like the incarnation happens by divine invasion where you go humans suck now (laughs) uh let us uh insert god in and now he does his thing thank you jc um resurrection he's out and he'll come back right like that whole thing misses that the incarnation um is the fruit of god's ongoing investment with the history of israel Mm -hmm. and the person of jesus um that category of investment really connects if you think of the hebrew scriptures regularly um it, the covenantal faithfulness of God is the primary uh, framework for understanding Yahweh, God's Hesed love, uh, faithful love, and Hesed, the Hebrew word, Hesed love. And what are the prophets regularly doing? They're going like, Yahweh consistently shows up and is faithful, even when we screw up. Mm-hmm. What is the primary character of God? Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, Yahweh is slow to anger. And in the image in Hebrew is that God has a giant nose, right? Like, so even if you have this anger, God's nose is so big, the fire's cooled before it gets out. Yeah. Why? Because God has refused to leave Israel behind. Yeah. And so that whole story, that whole context and all these things are part of the past that Jesus as a Jewish individual is inheriting. Yeah. And what is he inheriting? It's not just history that right. God has to break into. It right. is the fruit of God relating to, in, to a people in a covenant. And then, as Christians, right, uh, with our existential situation as Christians, we participate in the mind of Christ as Christians. Then the mind of Christ we participate in, then that is part of our past that we um, we connect to. Um, And the image, uh, like Jesus, differentiates himself from other uh, humans uh, in both uh, the fusion of his own will uh, Mm -hmm. with uh, God, the one he calls Abba, yep. right? So, um, I mean, you can think of all the different images he uses, but the most powerful one is in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. So, the, the, you know, I'm hit or miss, um, more on the miss side when it goes to momentary responsiveness. And a lot of times I opt for the 80% zesty yeah. loving thing, because deep down there's like a level of resentment, but I don't want to be that horrible. Right. You know, I, and, uh, <laughs> and and the, the, the times I should pray, not my will, but thine be done, are like the last times I'm going to do that. Right. <laughs> um, so, so, so one, it is his full faithfulness. But in doing that, that fusion between um, uh, where the Hesed covenantal faithfulness of God finds uh canonic faithfulness of Jesus, mm-hmm. then you have this uh, sense where the incarnation is an emergent property. Got you. Okay. God world relationship and not an intervention. Yeah, so yeah, the concern it. was divine power intervening. Then it's like, what well, what kind of human credit do you get for that? That's right.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. That's super helpful. Um, that that makes so much sense now, especially too, because um and I don't know why I haven't done this, but within the the, the realms of open and relational theology, knowing and understanding that God is Always active and, and present, you know, working to bring about the the most amount of good out of every situation. Like our friend Tom likes to say, um, I don't know why I didn't go back to the beginning and think about that being always true, and then because of that always being true, God always interacting with creation. Then of course, it, it, Jesus emerges out. It,
1: yeah, I got it. <laughs> right on. Well, and because the other side is it if the fullness if the revelation of god in jesus requires um divine intervention then our humanity is really uh it really takes a step down from the affirmation our material life gets in the hebrew scriptures right right like um so that's a big element of it and i think that uh You know, in the Logos chapter in the Gospel of John, I connect the spirit reading, like how that the spirit Christology is very similar to just what happens in Luke and Acts and then plays out. But the Logos uh, chapter, you know, in the Gospel of John, when it says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Then, um, you know, I end up connecting the two to say something like uh, what you were saying about just going back to the life of Israel. Well, with the Logos, it goes back to the cosmos, yeah. So then, as an open and relational thinker, when you tell the big story of creation, and you're thinking cosmic Christ, you say something yep. like, um, uh, "When God, uh, when God is invested in this world, uh, God is always invested for the growing." Uh, for growth in subjectivity of creation, responsiveness, depth of community, things like that. And you're like, so what does that look like? I don't know that there are uh, generative foundational constants at the beginning of this cosmic epoch, uh, such that um, you have the, the the constants that show up in a lot of like fine tuning arguments. And people mm-hmm. are like, that makes no sense Why exactly why does this work? Um, well, if, if God every moment is related to possibilities, and calling them to bring forth the life that is possible based on their own agency, right? Not determining them, right. but uh, luring them, then that's a framework for thinking about that. Over time, you get two dead stars, more well, two dead stars, two generations of dead stars. You start to have a whole bunch of different chemicals, our periodic table. Then you get a ty- different type of responsiveness in different chemical environments, such that something like life emerges in uh, particular spaces over the history of life, you get a growing depth and community and all these things. And over the history, you can see a growing subjectivity. At some point, the subjectivity of particular life doesn't just respond in ways to its environment, doesn't just have symbolic uh, communication based on instincts, but there become species that cultivate language and communal learning and things like that. And each time you can see, you could tell the story from this perspective, right? It can cohere with the scientific picture, but you're saying it from that existential, existential location, namely that Jesus is the Christ. If you're sitting there and you go, the image of the invisible God is this uh, uh, this canonic self-giving uh, love. Then you can look and retell the history of the cosmos, which is what John is saying when he begins his gospel and goes, Now there was this homeless first century Jew (laughs) and that's what the reason and rhyme and love and life of the cosmos looks like in the flesh, Mm -hmm. right? That's the prologue of John. And so I'm saying like, we could do that. And open relational theology spends way more time on religion, science stuff, um, all the the more straight theology questions. So this book was going, what happens if you do it with Christology? And um, it's easy to think, spirit Christology. If you're a process person, right? Like, you're just like, yeah, we do that all the time. Right. The Logos thing, like, how do you connect it to the, the cosmological picture? Um, so you, anyway, sorry, that was a, I get going. If you don't cut me off. Yeah,
0: I love it. No, it's so good. Well, actually trip uh, <laughs> prior to this uh, conversation, I was talking to uh, another mutual friend, Dan, and I was like, Dan, I'm interviewing trip tomorrow. What advice do you have? And Dan said, well, let Trip go because all of Trip's best stuff comes out when you just let him loose. And so I was like, sounds good to me. That's, that's less work for me. And I, I get the benefit of hearing all the really cool stuff and then people don't have to hear me say dumb stuff because we get to listen to all the really cool stuff. And then I get to interact with the really cool stuff and, and have it connect in my mind in real time. I like it. Yeah. So I don't know. It's fun. I enjoy it. But uh, one, one other thing that I did want to uh, touch on here before we wrap up, just because I, it's um, stood out to me so much. Um, and then I love how uh, you then apply it at the end of your book. But when it comes to salvation, um, this idea put forth by uh, theologian Andrew Sung Park of Han. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was first introduced to the concept of Han. I read a book called uh, Jesus of the East by a, a theologian named Fu Lu. Uh, who happened to study under uh, Park? Like that's his mentor, and that's where I first encountered Han. Um, but then within your book, I, you either you explained it differently or you gave a bigger picture of it. That just I was like, holy crap! I love every moment of this. <laughs> so can we talk about Han a little bit? What is this idea, and how does yeah, it play yeah. into the conversation?
1: So the and maybe like why Han? Uh, what what the problem that made me you know, pick direct engagement with Andrew Sun Park, other than I just really like his work, is one of the problems when thinking about salvation is most of Western Christianity has either got a narrative about salvation where Jesus is kind of like the moral example, or you have this penal substitutionary atonement type thing. And the story you tell about salvation is built for the guilty person. So I did something wrong. And then they say, well, you repent, confess your sins. God is faithful to forgive them. And so uh, if you are a violator and have violated your neighbor and harmed them, then we have a salvation story for that. Billy Graham professionally told America about it regularly. um, And we know what to do. The problem is, uh, yeah, everyone in some way uh, is a uh, sinner. But all of us also have different ways we've been sinned against. Absolutely. And when you have been sinned against, and then you want reconciliation and healing from God, and the only narrative of salvation you have is one where you need to confess it in order for God to heal it, then you get stuck putting in a prayer of confession um, about something where you were the victim or the sinned against. Mm-hmm. And that makes things worse. As a minister, um, I have seen this. And one example comes up a lot, especially in uh, evangelical context, uh, is sexual abuse. Yeah. When people have been taken advantage of sexually, they have a lot of shame. And then purity culture doesn't help. But if you think I have been a sexually assaulted uh, and you're processing it, And now in order for God to really heal and things, the only narrative you have is one where you aren't the victim, but the violator. That is just ugly. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, and it's bad if you're an open relational thinker where you realize that each moment God is investing God's self, desiring healing and wholeness and fullness. So when you start to think of this, uh, the weight of being a victim and wounds, the concept of Han in Korean uh, thought is so powerful yeah uh, and andrew park has talked about it and he used han um in, in one of his early books where it was much more directly engaging uh process philosophy okay so then his later um uh later books he has a short book if people are interested called trinity and the wounded heart of god i think is the name of it
0: yeah that uh, sounds right i'm gonna write that down so i can put in the show notes
1: yeah it's um uh, it, it's super good because it's uh, a survey of atonement theories and then introduces Han and then goes, here's what that means. Um, but the, uh, you know, for me, Han as a, in a sense, like one of the images he uses is like a black hole that the wounds you the wounds you can carry and not just individuals like a victim of abuse, but a people the mm-hmm. Korean people, they're between Japan and China, which constantly had different empires. They regularly were taken over. Um, anyway, so, the, but when your, when your victimhood becomes this kind of black hole in the self that it eats itself, the last thing you need to do is be like, well, it's a cross-shaped hole. You need to put Jesus in, you know, like, <laughs> right. like that's just not how it works. And yeah. so then if you think in an open relational context, the way in which woundedness can be internalized in our subjectivity, how does God relate to it? Well, Andrew Stone Park points out that, um, you know, sinner in the scriptures in the New Testament is not primarily a theological category, it's a sociological one. So um, like shepherds were sinners, but it wasn't because they particularly did anything, it's because they were economically exploited and their job made them sinners. Anyway, and think of uh, women without men got put into uh, where essentially they have to be something like a prostitute or whatever, um, but that's not because they were bad, right? It's because a a uh, totalitarian domination system that was inherently patriarchal regularly dismisses the marginalized and um, and women. And then what what recourse do they have? Mm-hmm. Well, technically, they are violating a holiness code, right? So uh, his he's like, look, the system Jesus is going in is one where there are people whose uh, experience both as a communal level, the oppressed people of Israel, and then at the, at the cultural social level um, th- where they're bearing these wounds. And what does Jesus do? He attends to them. And he does so first by having deep solidarity with them. And then uh, he doesn't always have solutions. There's not always a solution. You can't change a whole, uh, a whole order so that the woman caught in adultery ha- actually has a place to go. Mm-hmm. You, like but uh, what does this healing and movement look like it begins with deep solidarity and so he he talks about how if moment to moment and an open relational thought this is true god experiences and shares the fullness of the world's ongoing uh, uh, uh process within the divine life Then it's not just uh the people who have internalized Han. god has mm-hmm. And the need for reconciliation and healing and salvation is not something where where God is on the outside going like, I will bring it. God has invested God's self such that both of us, the whole God-world relationship, is in need of restoration and healing, wholeness, and salvation. So Andrew Sung Park says that God, too, is in need of salvation. Mm -hmm. And in one sense, you're like, what? I thought God's one that forgives everyone. But he's like, you've missed the point. The whole big story is that God gives God's self to the world all the way to, like pushes it all the way in. The the cross is a symbol of divine solidarity, not just in the person of Jesus, but with all those who bear crosses and die cross dead. And the resurrection is an affirmation that the healing and wholeness God desires is one where each wound and each cross is part of the divine life and the restoration. God is not leaving people's bodies on crosses without wholeness and peace and justice spoken over them, right? So the the demand of salvation is the world and God, uh, uh, or put it this way, if each moment God gives God's self to the world, and the world, uh, the image of wholeness is one where the world fully receives that which God gives, and that is one where you no longer have Han, you don't, like, it's no longer there, but it's not like uh, it's wanting to escape the, the space where the victim and violator, uh, the, the victim narrative is the one the violator's given, and the sinner narrative is the one that's one sinned against is given for restoration, and it's also wanting to reject the idea that salvation is something dispersed from the outside and not something accomplished within the relational dynamic. And Han kind of does that with both addresses the victim issue, and the relational issue of the inheritance of uh, perverse power and such.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really good, and that that was super helpful too because I think it also helps break us out of. And I mean, you said this, but it, it helps break us out of like this individualistic, like hyper individualism of like Western Protestant Christianity, um, and and it takes sin I think more seriously. Um, because then it's, it's communal and it's, it's looking at and engaging the fact that, um, like, it's not just, I, I, it's not just that I need forgiveness or something like that for something that I've done, but you, if I were to like sin against you, you need something as well. You need to be healed and restored and redeemed from that. And then the, the relationship, the, what I think, what I like about this is I, is I see it playing into and pushing towards, um, what I still cling to be my ultimate hope, the restoration and redemption of all things. Um, I mean, I'm a huge N. T. Wright fan, so that's that's where I'm going to go. Um, and I hope that's that's the hope that I look for. But I also think then um, it also seems to, and I'm just making this connection now, so maybe it, it it doesn't make sense. But it seems to this idea of Han, and then the the healing of Han seems to push towards a good understanding of some kind of ultimate reconciliation or, or Christian universalism, whatever language you want to use. Um, Cause if the, at the end of the day, God is trying to restore and redeem all things and heal the Han of the world, uh, not only within the world itself, but within God's self. Um, then at least in my mind, it seems like the natural progression of that would be some kind of ultimate reconciliation.
1: I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. The um, you know, f- around that, Uh, the the image of divine self-investment, it was really trying to uh, push back to the, or or at least where it originated for me now, it got used for a lot more, but um, (laughs) in open relational thought, there are theologians who want to preserve the idea of omnipotence as an option, essentially for God later, to make sure you get this eschatological hope, right? So they'll say something like, God creates a world out of nothing. And so like prior to there being a world for the more uh, orthodox expressions of open relational thought, like the the image of God is a much more classically omnipotent, God's hanging out in God's self and then creates a world. And now there's a world that has agency. God is in some way limited because God's not the only uh, agent. So it's, God like ties a hand behind God's back. You get self-limitation. See, it's like Jürgen Moltmann. Um, and I think N.T. Wright says something similar, though he's like a biblical scholar, so he's not interested in always answering theologians' questions directly. So, right, exactly. Um, um, <laughs> so the, uh, but the, the, in a sense, the self-limitation is to say like, yeah, the open relational framework is how we relate and all this kind of stuff. But if we need to untie that hand to get eschatological hope accomplished, then all of a sudden God would be like, bow pow, pow. Right. Eschaton. Um, And, you know, for for me, there's like a number of problems with it. But one of them is like, what, how big's the kill list got to be for you to pull pull that hand out? You know, (laughs) I feel like we've gotten past that point. And I know how much shit has to go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's, there's that response. But the other is, um, why is our, our assumption about the nature of divine power really, uh, cosmic Caesar that then we modify with Jesus as opposed to okay. the other way around. So the book yeah. is what if God's power is always the self-giving one, self-investment, how does our image of the power in Jesus then become to shape or thematize our picture of divine power. So the book is exploring the a doctrine of God where the power, the, 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 our understanding of God is thematized by Christ mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. a big way, um and so the open relational philosophical background is one that coheres with how god is revealed in christ as opposed to you fix your philosophy the divine action kind of stuff and then you inter use it to interpret jesus i try to let them both interpret each other okay your open relational vision of god helps you think through how god was in jesus how god was in jesus in open relational context then helps you answer god questions and uh And ultimately around the eternal hope thing is based on the difference between the infinite God of love and the finite world. That the distinction of infinite and finite is one where you ask yourself something like, will there ever be a moment where the infinite God of love ceases to give God's self to the world? The answer is no. So when you ask about eschatological hope, it's not because you get to a point of finite responsiveness that God like quits the ho- the hope is that the infinite God of love will always give God self. and like an infinite is a big a big number precisely yeah. because <laughs> it's not a number, right? And so the, it's that distinction that hope is nested in, not, not a um, uh, a potential divine power that shifts the terms okay. uh, that, that is on a holdout, uh, and you know I. I I came to that conclusion and was in working through the book and have since then been reminded, uh, in working on some of, uh, other things for early church stuff, that that's not too far off from what origin basically says in the early church. He says, uh, and he calls them just like the basic teachings of the apostles, which I wish okay. these were basic teachings to everybody <laughs> in his that's mind. Right. They are, um, he's like, well, God made the world. God's infinitely loving. Um, real love requires freedom. So we're not determinist. Um, and there's no time God won't be infinitely loving. So I'm probably a universalist. And he goes, we debate whether or not Satan gets saved. Yeah. Uh that I mean, this is origin. Right. Um, he goes, and then you say to yourself, well, when, when everyone, when all things are redeemed, well, can they fall again? Because you love freedom requires love. Right. So, he says, so then you have to ask yourself, are, are we, uh, are, are we more free when we're united to God? Or are we less free? And he goes, I would lean on the more free. But if there happens to be something where there's disunity and there's another fall, he goes, we already know God will redeem everything again. Maybe not see like right. this is. But see, <laughs> underneath them sure. having this discussion is um, real loving relationships require freedom, and in every free loving relationship, God will be loving. Yeah. Right. So. There's no God's not going to get rid of something that's necessary for love, freedom, in order to accomplish what God wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, love only wins precisely by the preservation of integrity of the other. Yeah, uh, and so uh, I I think the image, it you know, stuff at the end of the book, in a sense is uh, which I talked about early about uh, God's refused to be God without us. Right, but um, the Like, that ultimately is good news.
0: Right. Because the one who's done so is the infinite God of love. Right.
1: And so, um, you know, it makes you optimistic in all sorts of ways. Straight up.
0: Yeah, man. I dig it. That's good. All right. Well, um, do you have anything, like, that you're currently working on that you could give, like, a nod to? Like, anything exciting that we should be looking forward to from Trevor
1: well well i'm right now i'm working on uh philosophy of mind and cognitive science and oh, and psychism okay. and all that kind of stuff that's my current research project and then i'm working on a like a and the next academic book is on the uh nature like depictions of nature uh, okay um but then the there's two uh popular things uh tom ord and i are going to be doing a class and a book on the creed oh, we're going to interpret each line of the creed as an open in an open relational context that's uh, really
0: cool um, right on
1: uh i think we're doing that in around chris like i think may starts right after christmas we're going to okay. do it as a class okay and and then get and, like try the things out in the group and then hopefully if we don't suck at it edit it into a uh, a book. Um, if people have, if people are interested, I made a movie that's now on Amazon Prime called "The Road to Edmund."
0: Uh, I loved that movie. By the way, I personally really liked it, and I sh- I showed it <laughs> to when I worked at a Methodist church. I showed it to the limited number of young adults that were present in the church, and I invited the head pastor and associate pastor to be there. And luckily, I didn't get fired. Um, that's good. It was great, though. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was. It was and it spoke. It was really interesting. It actually spoke into uh, a, like a personal, real life situation that was going on with with myself and and one of my colleagues at the time. And it was really helpful. It it's it for the moment that we watched it in. It was it was great. So I I recommend it.
1: What would you What would you tell someone about it? Because it's not like there's a large market of buddy road trip comedies with progressive spiritual themes it's not a genre
0: (laughs) yeah it doesn't really exist um i think i would i would what what i would want to do is i would want to recommend it to people that um are starting to or already have um started to question uh a variety of things within their faith um and just uh yeah allow it to be like like a like a bridge or a building block a starting point for conversation to like okay, now let's go have these kind of conversations. Um, it was really interesting and helpful talking with the young adults, the other young adults at the time, just uh, specifically around the, the issue of homosexuality because it's kind of <laughs> like one of the main things the movie's uh, focused on. Um, it helped a lot with people in that conversation. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think also too, I would want to recommend it to uh, maybe the all the wrong kind of people that like maybe want to get an idea as to, okay, why do people have these like more mm-hmm. progressive thoughts or something? Because I think oftentimes, at least in my experience, um, pastors uh, have people that start to ask questions, or to uh, go through the process of deconstruction, whatever. And then they don't know what to do. And so those people are stigmatized. And so pastors haven't been prepared and equipped to help people mm-hmm. ask these kind of questions. And so I think this movie could, could also serve um, as a tool for pastors who, sure, they're not going to agree with everything that's in the movie, but it can at least give them a context of understanding for this is real stuff that people deal with. How can I be better pastor rather than just writing these people off how can i actually engage with them um i think it it would be a helpful starting point for that as well
1: yeah and in it um but you know if you don't like certain types of humor then you'll, sure. you'll probably just be offended at the movie um, that's true <laughs> uh, it got it, it was funny like with uh all the religious film festivals we sent it to were not interested Oh, and then like the, it but it got very positive like it won best comedy a couple of times and like uh, LGBTQ film people were like, oh, this is great. yeah uh, and then you we had uh, a number of responses from people who you know had left church behind because they were in some really conservative context and are watching the movie and are like, I don't know, it's religious and then by the end of it, they're like emailing me their whole long story <laughs> uh, going like, this is an option. this is a type of Christianity, you know. Uh, so it was it was fascinating especially if like my normal interaction are with people that enjoy hour and a half long nerd conversations yeah like to then come up with a way of of you know presenting something that in a medium a lot more people could engage so, yeah this one
0: yeah. sweet well yeah I'll link that in the show notes too as well and that's on Amazon
1: yeah the Amazon Prime is cause that way you can watch for free
0: right and right. uh yeah sweet, man. Cool. All right. Well, where, where else can people find uh, trip fuller? I know you have the podcast, uh, but where else can
1: people go to find you? Well, just tripfuller.com trip with two Ps. And, uh, um, you can find all sorts of things there. Um, there'll be links to the book and, uh, all, if you get real bored and want to listen to a thousand or so podcast episodes, I started in 2008. So there's a lot,
0: yeah, you're one of like the early adopters of podcasting. I don't
1: know if I hadn't joined earlier, I'd have to try harder. But now it's like <laughs> I've been doing it so long that uh, I wouldn't know what to do if I was not So sure, sure. just just keep doing it.
0: Right on, man. Well, yeah, this, this so this has been awesome, man. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for for hanging out today, and uh, definitely we should do it again sometime. And uh, I'm gonna bug you a little bit if you don't mind, I'll drop you a few uh, Facebook messages every once in a while or something. Yeah. These kind of conversations are super helpful, and, and me personally, um, I'm super interested in uh, Jesus-centered theology and then taking that um, and having it interact with open and relational theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think your book does that, um, or, or uh, to an extent does that, and so that's exciting to me, and I'm specifically interested in that, so cool. I was down to have conversations.
1: All righty.
0: man. All right, Trip. Well, have a good one. And uh, for the listeners, as always, go Caps. And <laughs> the Carolina. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> the Canes. Canes. The Canes. Go Canes. Peace and love, guys. Uh- <laughs>